suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. Despite the reputation of their homeland, some are remarkably thin-skinned, some seem to have multiple lifespans, a few were once thought to be extinct in the region, others have been observed being sacrificed by their own. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Happy International Women's Day, everybody. My name is Shay, and if this is your first time joining us, this is a podcast called The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove, where we discuss news, politics, sex, and religion. Joining me tonight, as always, is The Iron Fist, a.k.a. Trevor, and Joe, the tech guy. Oh, it's a pleasure to Welcome. be on. Thank you, Shay. Evening, all. Um, thanks, Shay, for that introduction. Do you want me to keep going or do you want to keep going? I think, I think I'll handball it to you. Okay, know? yeah. So in honour of International <laughs> Women's Day, Shay kicked us off. Uh, welcome, dear listener. Yes, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, news and politics, sex and religion. So it's uh, International Women's Day. Um, Shay did some volunteering with the floods. We'll hear about that. We've got um, oh, Peter Dutton, Clive Palmer, Scott Morrison, up to the usual mischief. God, I'll be glad to see the back of all of them. And um, we've got some feedback that I got from Twitter. And depending on how much time we've got left, how much we delve into more Ukraine stuff and whatever else Joe and Shay come up with um, in the meantime. So, so Shay, International Women's Day, did you do anything mm. to celebrate? Anything special? Uh, I worked. Right. Uh, so I didn't do anything special. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I haven't really worked out how to commemorate it yet. Yep. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Whether I'd, it should be a cupcake or uh, a, bar, a bra burning. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't think there was any – well, I don't know. There might have been some functions around town where businesswomen gathered together or ladies. I don't know, mm. but I don't know what was on. But um, you've been doing some – volunteering with the floods is that right like you, have, you took a week yeah. of holiday and you went and mucked out mud somewhere <laughs> that's right so um i took a week of holiday and i spent a little bit of time at the gold coast and then i was supposed to go um to sydney for the mardi gras uh which was something that was had been on the bucket list for a while but uh when i got back to my apartment which is in ashgrove which mm. you may have seen on the news the devastation was pretty bad, mm. so I decided I was I was needed here, and that the Mardi Gras could wait, and that I'm sure they could celebrate without me, and I could come maybe next year. Yep. And I signed up to do some volunteering. So this is like with the Mud Army, just go online, that yeah, sort of thing. The Mud right. Army. So at first, um, it seemed like um, it'd be on on Thursday, but then there was this forecast of this dangerous storm, so it all got cancelled until Saturday. So by Saturday, um, most of the volunteering was around community places. So I went to a softball court and helped them move things, shift things, find things, 
and then went on to the Strikers Soccer Club to help them sort of gurney and scrub their their walls. Mm. Yep. So pretty muddy at the end. Pretty muddy, yeah. I was absolutely covered in shit at the end. Not Mm. actual sewerage, but yeah. Mm. I kept saying, like, it smells like Ireland because my grandparents own a farm in Ireland and that's what you could smell. You could smell the mud and the the wetness and the dampness. Yeah, Mm. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, mm. and I was really, really impressed by um, the spirit of the volunteers. I think um, even though we didn't have clear structures, it was really well coordinated um, and the people who were just like obvious leaders just showed up and just started directing people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, I just did also observe that I think the goodwill of Australians is starting to run out, the frustration of not having appropriate planning, much consideration around resilience. Obviously, no one's talking about climate change. Right. So yeah, people were mumbling so. these sorts of things as they're yes. mucking away. Right. Oh, yeah. was. Right. Did she say climate change? Oh, yeah. Did she, did she drop the C-bomb? Oh, right. she did. Mm. Although, Great. Although she's, well, I'm glad. She's, she's still approving coal mines, but she at least right. climate okay. change. This is yeah, hypocrisy yet again. Yes. If I rename this podcast, it'll be the Exposing Hypocrisy podcast because, mm. yeah, I mean, you can have a position on something which sometimes might be right or wrong, not that there is with climate change, but when you do one thing and say another, it's um, it's often what is happening in our political system. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I saw her on the news tonight because in Brisbane we've had this restaurant that basically got unmoored. It was like a floating restaurant and it ended up washed on the side of the Brisbane River after the last flood, and this time it got picked up again and, and, that had happened. and got washed again to the other side of the river. And Anastasia Palaszczuk was on the news going, you know, somebody needs to do something about this. We really need to start making some decisions about this place. And I was like, Anastasia, you are the Premier. Isn't that your job? <laughs> Why do we have to keep reminding them? Fuck, yeah. it's frustrating. Excuse my French. Yeah. 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 The people who are in government, Peter Dutton wants to – start a GoFundMe and it's like I know. you are the government. That's for other people to do. You should be rustling up government money from whatever funds are available that are seemingly untouched. There are $4 billion sitting in the future emergencies fund or whatever it is. Yes. Mm. You know, that's what you do. You lean into that and pull some money out and, and splash it around. Like it's so easy. You can just say, yeah. here, I've, I've, reached into the fund, I've provided this money and we're going to do all this. And why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't yeah. you? I just, they're, they're such and, hopeless organisers. Liz Moore was saying mm-hmm. that they've been applying for emergency flood relief funding to build infrastructure, you know, mm-hmm. build a levee or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and they got taken off the list because they weren't a marginal seat. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So. Sorry. Sorry, that, the second part was an assumption. But the first part is true. Mm. They were taken <laughs> off the list. Yeah, I've got two customers in Lismore. I managed to speak to one of them and they've been through so many floods, they're completely crushed. And mm. they, you know, it's like three and four metres deep in the centre of town. Even if you had a higher mezzanine level to put things on, it's still got flooded. And yeah. you know it's going to happen again. And it's, you know, Lismore's a sizable country town and that whole CBD is just flat and subject to flooding. And, and 
Oh, I just feel so sorry for people. I couldn't do it. Well, I'd have to just cut my losses. What, what's that? Gimpy and Maribor too. Yes. Maribor mm. though, I've got another customer in Maribor and they're in the CBD, but Maribor had the temporary levy. Did you see yes. that? Uh, I, I saw it last time around when the water came up the storm drains and got up behind the levee. But yeah, they fixed that, and this okay. time it worked quite effectively. And so um, if you're able to find a picture of it and throw it up later, Joe, um, yeah, from Google, um, it's a metal structure and plastic, and they put it up in the street and protect most of the C- CBD. So my customer in Maryborough, Main Street, would have been flooded but um, rescued. But... Lismore is a different matter. You know, it's so big. And um, and uh, one of my other friends was saying, you know, in Christchurch, Shay, like how they have regular earthquakes and mm. things like in New Zealand, the government does the insurance because no insurer would insure earthquake in, say, Christchurch. So the government doesn't. And I think that's the case in some areas in America where it's flood prone where mm. the government steps in and provides some sort of insurance at a reasonable rate and just wears the loss because you just have to. Um, either that or just help an entire town relocate. I don't know how you would do it. So, yeah, there's a picture um, of that structure, which they whacked up. The first time they did it in the f- uh, floods a few months ago, it, it failed because water sort of came up through the stormwater or something. But this time it worked quite well and um but that couldn't be done in um lismore because it's just too high in lismore it's like three meters so um yeah very interesting that sort of thing so and of course tonight if you're in sydney you're being um you're very wet as well i'm so glad i didn't make that trip to sydney i would have been stuck somewhere watching it so they've um so yeah they're in trouble down there so at least you know, the silver lining to all of this natural disaster is people are thinking this isn't normal and clearly climate is acting in a peculiar way that it hasn't acted before and maybe something really is going on. So it is getting people to um, yeah, I mean, come the fact across. That, uh, we got almost a metre of rain in three days. Mm-hmm. Um, my local rain gauge, uh, Mount Glorious, had 1.8 metres. Yes, Yep, incredible amount, yeah. Yeah. So uh, Bromman says New Zealand has Earthquakes Commission. It can only provide fairly basic assistance in the event of natural disasters. So, hmm, okay. Yeah, I just yeah, I just feel sorry for these people in Lismore. It's tough. So, mm. yeah, and smelly. And, and their stories, oh, my God. Mm, another customer in yeah. Woolambar. And just the stench and, uh, just, mm. and not being able to... Redo your business. So anyway, I cut my finger two weeks ago carving um, uh, a zucchini and five stitches later it's still healing. So I'm going nowhere near mud, uh, particularly laced with sewerage, so not that I would have anyway. So I applaud you, Shay, for your um, good work. I did the Mud Army in 2011, but Mm -hmm. by the time, like the council put us on buses and sent us out to this suburb I'd never been to before, but kind of the area they sent us to really pretty much had done everything they needed to do. So there really wasn't anything for us to do at that point. So, but it was well I kind of wasn't with the Mud Army. I technically Mm. was part of the Labor Party's community sort of action thing. Mm. Yeah, because I signed up for the Mud Army, but it all got too 
hard. Right. Really. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, um, I heard they were oversubscribed. Yeah. Meanwhile, Tom the Warehouse Guy says the Accident Compensation Corporation regime in New Zealand is quite revolutionary. It is a system that works very well in New Zealand. Okay. So Accident Compensation Corporation working well. New Zealand Earthquake Commission maybe not so well. Who, uh, anyway, I know they have resorted to um, government insurance in New Zealand. Yeah, you'd have to be careful because otherwise insurers will just be taking the easy way out. Mm. Yep. So yep. you'd have to make sure that it wasn't gamed. Yeah. You know, I think. Well, the CEO of SunCorp came out and actually really said some things that I wish some of our government leaders had said, which is we spend ninety-seven percent or something on um, cleanup, and we spend like three percent on mitigation and prevention. Mm -hmm. Yep. And he was just like so straight up Yep. that, you know, the consumer is going to wear this, premiums are going to go up, like do something. Yes, and people were complaining we've got these money in these funds and it just doesn't get yes. spent even though Lismore asked for it and they get knocked back, yeah. So plenty of ammunition for Labor to work with um, in the upcoming election, whenever that is. You know, I'm getting quite philosophical about this election. I'm... Um, yeah, in the sense, I'm actually quite cool with the Morrison victory now because I really think if he wins, despite all of this, then you just know that it's the end of the world. <laughs> the, just, it, it, the situation is truly hopeless. If he can pull this off, then everybody has to understand there's a major problem. Get rolled either way. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm quite philosophical about it. Him actually, um, mm. part of me wants him to win now, just so that there'll be a revolution if he actually wins. I would think. Yeah. So anyway, I'm either way, I'm okay now. I'm, that's my philosophy on it. International Women's Day um, had its roots sort of in socialist, leftist sort of movements, and um, and a little bit to do with Soviet Russia as well. Anyway, as as how they settled on the date, eighth of March. So definitely a left wing sort of origin to International Women's Day. And, you know, do we still need it? Um, I saw this tweet where this guy, Darren Gilmore, tweeted, um, so New South Wales girls in public schools get free tampons and sanitary products, $32 million from the first year, and wait for it, $28 million per year after that. WTF, what do the boys get? This person responded, they get to never have to bleed out of their penis every month or push That's a baby right. out of it. <laughs> I think there's still a place for International Women's Day based on that. Yes, I think there is. Mm, um, let's go to, I've got this, Essential came out with some stuff. Let me just uh, find, no, not that. How do I share this screen? Uh, share screen, hang on. Uh, that one, yeah. So, essential poll. To what extent do you agree or disagree with the following statements about gender equality in Australia? And the dark blue is strongly agree. The light blue somewhat agree. Orange somewhat disagree. And red strongly disagree. And grey is unsure. So blue agree. Red and orange disagree. 
And the first one is gender equality, meaning that men and women are equal, has come far enough already. And you've got about 50%, roughly. What's that? Um, 48% of people think that um, gender equality, meaning that men and women are equal, has come far enough already. Next one, gender equality has already been mostly achieved. And again, that's about 49%. And mm, work to achieve gender equality today benefits mostly well-to-do people. That was 59%. Um, there should be laws that require equal salaries for men and women in the same position. That's big. That's 80%. And... Um, although there's been significant progress on gender equality, there's still a long way to go, and that's 70-odd percent. Okay, let's deal with there should be laws that require equal salaries for men and women in the same position. Well, it would be for jobs where there's a minimum wage, but there's a lot of jobs that aren't, hey? Like, mm. um, but, but if you can prove that... So it's, it's very difficult where... Uh, you negotiate your own salary. Mm. But certainly if you are on a... You could make the case that if you were getting paid less than a male counterpart, that it was due to uh, discrimination. Mm. And I'm, I'm fairly sure that a employment tribunal would find that persuasive mm. unless there was a good argument in terms of, you know, um, experience or something like that. But the problem with any of these where you negotiate your salary is, you know, you could be getting paid 10%, 20% less than any of your colleagues, whether they're male or female. Yes. So I've never been in a large organisation, um, except when I did my articles, really, but people don't tend to share their salary with each other, their knowledge. Is that right? It seems to be not the done thing. Probably people should. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was reading legally in the States, you're not allowed to ban your employees from talking about how much they earn. Yep. However, most states are at-will states, so they can fire you and just make up an excuse that's anything other than you were discussing your salary. That's in the US. Yes. Yeah. But, yeah. Over here, I've not seen anything, and I've I've not read anything in my contract that says I'm not allowed to. But yep. it's certainly not done. Yes. I've I've had conversations mostly with people who've left yep. as to how much they were earning. Yes, that seems to be the way. When people are leaving, they tend to reveal, mm -hmm. particularly if they feel that maybe a colleague was who they like was being underpaid. Yeah. And they might mm -hmm. say, hey, by the way, I was getting X amount. You might want to ask for more. Ask for that. Mm. But it's probably something where people should seriously think about talking to their colleagues and swapping information. What have you got to lose other than the embarrassment yeah. that maybe you are paid less and you'll soon know when you can do something about it? Like I would have thought it makes sense that people should proactively in a workplace um, interrogate their colleagues and say, look, I'll show you mine if you show me yours type of thing. Mm. Yeah. Have you ever done it? Me? Yeah. Negotiated my pay. Well, have you have you been? No, only as a collective. I've been yeah. as part of enterprise bargaining agreements. So yeah. I already know mm. who's getting what. And we're all getting the same. In the chat room, 
Have you ever, you know, proactively talked to colleagues to check what everyone's getting paid and swapped information so that you can make sure you're getting what you deserve? So I think it'd be a good... I think it's something people should be encouraged to do. Um, mm. Yeah. So... Um, Roland put up a st- – uh, let me just show that one. I'll get rid of that screen, put that back up. Um, another depressing statistic for you, which was released today, apparently one in five Australians believe that women who accuse men of sexual and physical abuse are lying. Hmm. One in five who accuse men of sexual and physical – yeah. Do you know what? My problem is, Bronwyn, I worked a little bit in family law and I saw – abuse allegations used as a weapon in family law when it, I was really suspicious that that was just being put on. And I've heard of that just amongst friends as well. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if it I, was um, outside of a divorce proceeding... Hmm, I wouldn't be suspicious. But, but certainly in a family court proceeding, yeah, I... I I have heard that some lawyers are saying, "Oh yeah, make an allegation. It makes it easier mm. um, just to push harder around access for the kids." Yeah, and just and, and I can believe that there are unscup- scru- unscrupulous lawyers who would advise their clients. Mm. Yep, or hint at it, but yes, I think they're. So why do you think they're making them up? What's the basis of that? Oh, in the family court system, is yeah. as a leverage to say, "Well, you shouldn't get custody because you're a." Uh, oh, I, well, um, that's more sort of um, you're an improper person to be a, um, a custody of the child. So, and and the mother yeah, can't. I see the, and the mother I see, can't. I see why someone mm. might make an allegation, but I mm. just don't understand how we can presume or like what did you see that made you think this person was making it up? This would be in cases where they're family friends. And so we know the guy in the in the side of the family, and just our mm. personal knowledge of him would be that just doesn't add up at all. I mean, it even could, though with you know Hannah Clark's yep husband, who was supposed to be a really good bloke, and then set them all on fire. Yeah, you know, like we've seen this repetitive story of like oh, the bloke wouldn't do that. Yeah, actually did. Yeah, but then. You know, like in one case, for example, the, the female was a drug addict who had gone out, who was, had moved out and was living with a bikie and the bikie was throwing the stepkids into the swimming pool who couldn't swim, like crazy stuff. Like it was a really, truly dysfunctional stuff and yeah. she was making these allegations. There was, there was one where we'd known the guy a long time. You know, you're right, it might not, it, it, it could have been true, but... It's certainly the case where you've got vicious people who are seeking any leverage. It's an opportunity. So, and yeah. when you balance that, like on sort of probability, so you have one mm. one anecdote there. Mm. Did you did you see that a lot? That type of thing a lot? Did you, would you say? <sighs> Look, I or was one case enough to support. Off the top of my head, I couldn't say whether it's two or three personal cases and maybe two or three Mm. professional cases. Certainly the professional Mm. ones. Mm. Who's to know? Because I don't know the guy. just a client who's come in and I haven't really known him. But um, 
It's an easy allegation to make. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and and Bromman says, Trevor, I've also heard stories of women who are trying to protect their kids from abusive exes and the family court still forces their kids to see the fathers. Um, and that's true too, Bromman. That is true. Um, uh, and I've heard of cases where the fathers, for example, are abusive and the women um, have to still give the father access and hand their kid over because if they don't, they might end up losing custody and the father will get custody. So they have to comply with the access orders even though they're deeply suspicious. Oh, wait, not more suspicious. They know that the father is a bad egg. So it does happen the other way as well. Um, mm. That's true. Um, mm. So anyway, the original statistic was um, was Bromman's about a fifth don't believe it and in an ordinary case that seems high. Just if, if they're a family court matter, I tend to just, just know that they get bitter, these things. Like I'll tell you the one story, how bitter these things. And if they aren't? And then if they aren't? If they aren't, what? Are you um, likely to believe them? If they're, I wouldn't never know. Family court law oh. matter, oh. and she's raising the allegations. Say, like, let's take the example of we've had three uh, sexual assault cases against footballers in a matter mm. of years. Like, mm. they're certainly the media retellings of them as they're particularly bad. Mm. They sound really, it- really awful, and. Um, we have these, like, all these Facebook comments saying this girl's just looking for some money. Mm. You don't get money from footballers by making rape allegations. Mm. It seems really obvious to me from where I'm standing is that certainly the NRL has a big culture problem that they are not dealing with and actually shielding men from. Mm. And yet when these women raise their concerns, even though it seems like they're not going to get any justice, they still do it. Doesn't seem to be anything to be gained, and yet people still say, "I don't believe her." So there is an mm. implicit bias. There is a cultural problem in Australia. Yeah, there would be. Yep. Mm. Yep. Um, and so I guess yeah, it definitely so it definitely hear happens. It, hear an allegation. It, it definitely yeah. happens. The question is how much. Like, is it say minuscule or is it not? I don't know. The false, the false allegations yes. are supposed to be about five percent, yeah. depending on who you're asking. Right. Yep. Yep. I, I think yeah. more worrying is the. Uh, I was reading an article today. I think in Independent Australia, uh, talking about the presumption of innocence being uh, argued against. Um and saying that no that isn't right we need to have a presumption of innocence um certainly the title nine cases in america in america where merely the allegation will get you thrown off campus Mm. and there is no presumption of innocence there is no uh beyond reasonable doubt Mm. and yeah there was there was a horrible story of um the guy who woke up in bed with a young woman and realised that she had made claims against a number of his um, 
former classmate. And he rushed down to make the allegation on her before she made the allegation on him. Mm, yeah. Because they both fell into bed drunk. Yep. And he said, you know, I, it was preemptive. Yep. If I hadn't done it to her, she'd have done it to me. We were both un, unable to consent. Mm. We were both that drunk. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah, that would happen in family court stuff as well, where there would be a, you accuse me of this, well, I'll accuse you of the same thing as well, you know, and... Yeah. Um, in order to get domestic violence orders and things. So um, I think things get bitter. I'll tell you this story where this uh, friend of mine was doing family law and he was negotiating on behalf of the husband and he said to the husband, look, we're really close here. You could have just agreed to um, what they've offered here or, you know, you can spend $5,000 with me arguing about it you know, over essentially $5,000. I mean, do you want to give me the $5,000 or do you want to give your your ex the $5,000? You know, do you want to pay 5000 in legal fees or just give up and give her the 5000 And the guy pulled out his checkbook and wrote a check for $5,000 for the lawyer and handed it over to him <laughs> without any further word. So it's angry. pretty nasty out there. So, um yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I've been puzzling about this believe thing because mm -hmm. um, around the time of our um, last podcast together, I'd been suffering from abdominal pain for about 24 hours. And I'd been to the doctor the day before mm -hmm. or the day of the podcast. And the doctor said to me, she asked me about the level of pain. And I said, six out of 10. Um, she was like, oh, stop eating airplane food. It could be a bowels, could be your ovaries go home, put a heat pack on it, see ya. Right. Didn't examine me, didn't didn't do a urine test. Mm. Basically just asked me if I was, if I was pregnant right. and that was it, right? So Wednesday, I'm basically, unless I'm in the fetal position, I'm in pain. Yep. So I present to emergency. And I appreciate the context of if a woman presents to emergency and abdominal pain, maybe, maybe people will take it more seriously. But I had the real experience of being believed by the second doctor. Right. It was totally different. Yep. The way she responded. And it just got me thinking about when we say being believed, we don't actually want men hung up by their ankles. Mm. We're saying when you take us at our word, you respond accordingly. Mm -hmm. You examine me. You find out where the pain is. You investigate it. Could it be this? Let's do an ultrasound, that type of thing. Let's get to the bottom of it, not just, mm, you've been eating too much plain food. Go was, home. Was the first doctor a male or a female? The first doctor was a female. Right. The second doctor was a female. Right. So there wasn't a gender bias. Right. Yeah, but there was Maybe a there distinction was in their response. Well, possibly. I think right. it was more about me being overweight. I thought there might right. have been some bias there you, about maybe I'll just experience abdominal pain because I'm overweight. I'm not sure. So are you thinking there was anything in terms of gender well, in relation to this? I was really curious having had this experience. So I right. jumped on the QUT library search and there is just so much of this stuff. Right. Like where women present with something, they're not taken seriously. It turns out to be serious. Sometimes they die. Right. And that they happens more than with men. 
Is yes. Right. Yeah. Well, tell me, Trevor, have you ever presented to the doctor with abdominal pain and they told you to put a heat pack on your testicles? <laughs> no. And wait it out? No? What no. about you, Joe? Well, I was going to say my Crohn's was misdiagnosed for two years. Mm. Okay. My, my GP believed me, but the specialist didn't. Mm. Okay. Mm. And and when when I went off and got a second opinion and came back and said, yeah, the second opinion is I've got cancer. Right. Uh, the specialist said, um, why did you get a second opinion? Mm. Yep. You're going to have to hide those. Um, we've got a troll yes. on the chat. Yeah, sorry. I'm just in the process of doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Tell, finish your story if you like, Joe. And we'll, um, yeah. yeah. Or we'll hide the um, chat maybe. How do we do that until you've got it fixed? Uh, captions. Uh, anyway, I've uh, got it. You've got it? Well, okay. I thought I had it. Okay. I'll leave it with you. Um, but, yeah, you were misdiagnosed. Um, I, I don't know, Shay, you're telling that story. I don't know. Okay. So when you went online, there's just a massive amount of cases comparatively of women being not believed for abdominal pain rather than men, mm. it seemed. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Um, uh, especially um, heart attacks in women. Right. Uh, because mm. they show up differently from men. I believe shoulder pain is the classic symptom for heart attacks in women. Right. They get less. Yeah. Um, it's not picked up as quickly. Mm. So just back to this um, uh, the screen, I'll share it again, just the central poll. Um, work to achieve gender equality today benefits mostly well-to-do people. Well, they're not well-to-do, meaning the lower working classes who might be on some sort of minimum wage or award wage, I would have thought, where it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, surely you are paid the same in those mm -hmm. industries, I would have thought. So... It probably is in the industries where there is no minimum wage, where it is a flexible buy negotiation type thing, where there is a disparity still. And so that probably is where the work that's done today benefits mostly the well-to-do. Because I would have thought legislatively the less well-to-do are already covered. Maybe I'm wrong, but um, that's how I read that. Um and all right so yep uh do 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 there is a law i can't um but basically there's a federal legislation workplace relations mm. act 1996 sex discrimination act 1984 mm. um says that you must get equal pay for equal work yeah yep so say in a law firm for example you might have two lawyers, one male, one female, one male being paid 10 grand more than the female, there'd be arguments over what type of work you were doing and other things. But, um, yeah, I guess if the female has more experience and is clearly doing more difficult work and is being paid less, she would have some claim of some sort. But, um, yeah, it's a common story. And I guess if I was part of a large organisation, I would be asking my colleagues 
um, around the lunch table and saying, hey, guys, let's all just reveal our wages and make sure we're getting what we think we should get. So I'm, I'm keen to know in the chat room, has anybody done that and are you motivated to give it a go as a result of this? So um, good. I did see an interesting argument that said <clears throat> when we compare men and women, it always seems to be around salary. Mm. Um, and women are more likely to have flexible working agreements or flexible working arrangements, mm -hmm. generally around the kids. Um, but whether we should value flexible working arrangements more than salary. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're, we're placing a male lens on this. The definition of success is pay. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe maybe we need to shift the, the, the discussion. Mm-hmm and say, actually, why aren't we saying we should have, yeah, rather than working a 60-hour week, we should be advocating for a fixed 35-hour week. Mm. Mm. Yep. Yep. I mean, the argument is, I guess, a women would say, oh, we have to, we leave the workforce for extended periods of time mm. to have babies. That interrupts with our career. So our career development is hampered. And so we reach 35 or 40 and our male colleague who hasn't been interrupted has progressed through management or higher levels because of that lack of interruption. And the yeah. counter argument to that is, yeah, well, you got to stay at home and enjoy time with your kid and, um, and quality of life style component to all that. Is that what you're saying, Joe? Is that where you're heading? Um, yeah, mm. effectively. Mm. I mean, uh, for the people who choose to do that, mm. I, I certainly think there's a value to that. Mm. Um, having, yeah, having been a father, been a, a part of that, I used to look after my daughter on weekends. Um, it wasn't something that I would choose to be doing, but I know equally that there are people who would love to be a stay-at-home dad mm. and would consider that... Um, uh, a benefit, uh, yeah, a plus. Be better, better than earning a huge amount of money. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so um, so it's tricky and good comments in the chat room. Can't get to all of them at this stage, um, but thank you for those comments and, um, yeah. All right, I think that was all in terms of gender equality do you have anything else to add in terms of international women's day at all i just wanted to add the victory that i found which i'm gonna read out because uh otherwise i'll put words in that aren't supposed to be there um so it's a current victory for women so um so this thing called the stella count that surveys 12 publications national regional newspapers journals magazines and assesses the extent of gender bias in the field of book reviewing in australia and the good news is for the first time since the count started in 2012, women authors have received over half of the reviews of the publishers counted. 55% uh, reached in 2020. So though they're not sure exactly why this is happening, uh, it's estimated that 65% of authors are women and 61% of women are frequent readers. The Stella Count brought statistic visibility to gender bias in expert commentary on authors. And because of that visibility, we're starting to see a shift. 
So, so, so it was, soon women will be experts in literary commentary. Okay, so the authors of the reviews were more than 50% women. Is that what it was, rather than the reviews so were of the, female the authors? So authors are 65%. Right. The... 61% of women are frequent re- readers. Mm. So both the audience and the authorship is predominantly female. Mm-hmm. And now it's starting to show up in that their books are being reviewed. Right. And there's real value in having your book reviewed because mm. then people bring those reviews into bookshops and say, have you got this? Or, yep. it, you know, generates conversation and then they sell more books. Yep, yep. Just a final point on this I forgot to mention. Hey. Um Final point um, I forgot to mention was, well, actually, going back to that one before I forget, would it be true that a lot of, okay, guilty of gender stereotyping here? For no, example, I think we should. Okay, like, in that's my, what's cool about this podcast is in, we can actually discuss it. Okay, in my house, for example, you know what mm-hmm. I'm reading here. Like it's obvious from, it's, yes. it's all to do with the podcast. There's no fiction. My wife yeah. is reading fiction. Uh, a lot, and on her Kindle. So um, in the same way that women seem to like true crime podcasts, they also like novels. And they will talk amongst themselves as to the novels they're reading and share what they're about and swap authors and it's quite a social thing. You know, you often hear of women's book clubs. You very rarely hear of men's book clubs. So it might be just a gender thing that women are into a type of literature, fiction, that is particularly ah. handy to have reviews from a female point of view as to whether the fiction is good or not. I don't know. It, it yeah. could be to do with the subject matter as much as anything. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm guessing. Mm, I hadn't uh, for, considered that. For yeah. those who've read Mills and Boone yep. or are aware of Mills and Boone, Yes. Uh, they, they're romantic fiction, mm. um, otherwise known as mummy porn. Yeah. Barbara Cartland. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I'm, I'm guessing the majority of the readers are not male. No. But Whereas I'm going to say war um, biographies yeah. are more likely to be male readers. Correct. But, you know, there's obviously very... You don't know if that's correct, Robert. You don't have the stats. No, but... I think correct in that I agree with your assumptions. Those assumptions sound correct to me. I, I don't know how you'd be able to pull those demographics. Mm. I'm sure Amazon's I'm sure they can. plenty of I'm sure Amazon's got plenty I'm sure of Sure they'd be able to, yeah. Mm. Um Yeah. Now the other thing I wanted to mention just um on International Women's Day stuff and whether there's equality. We talked about this a um, few months ago, maybe a year ago, I've lost track. But at least in Queensland, if you look at our major institutions, our parliament, our police force, our judiciary, all headed up by women. Um, so there's, um, there's a lot of the chief justice, the premier, the police commissioner, the High Court Chief Justice, there's a lot of Governor sort of General. powerful... Governor-General, yes. A lot of powerful positions are actually held by women. So that is something to bear in mind when looking at the whole equality issue um, mm. and trying to figure out um, how far we've come. Yeah. And we've had some great women in the public eye in the past mm. year. I mean, mm. Ash Barty, mm. like, 
such a show of good sportsmanship, mm. you know, like yep. that's what she is. And it's really beautiful to see, you know, mm. that expression of leadership in a different way, mm. especially in tennis. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. previous health, chief health yeah. officer as well was, um, yeah. So well, Previous chief health officer is now our governor. Yes. So, um, so just bear that in mind when we're thinking of equality issues. And um, okay, just um, uh, what else have I got here? Next topic. Um, oh, just while we're on, while we're just on essential poll, um, um, might as well throw this one up as well. I'm going to talk more about Ukraine if we have time, but just a quick diversion to Ukraine. Which political party do you think is better equipped to understand and react to the current conflict between Russia and the Ukraine? Um, Australians were asked. 24% said Liberal. 24% said Labor. 33% said no difference. And 19% don't know. That's a reassuring statistic. At least there was no major leaning towards the coalition being the better government in dealing with the Ukraine crisis from an Australian point of view. So that True. was that was heartening at least. So, mm. um, Well, we didn't have Tony Abbott threatening to shirt front Putin. No, but um, <laughs> Morrison would have given half a chance. Um, um, Do you think he would? He seems so gutless. He can't even, he'd talk. you know, hold his ground with the premiers. Yeah, he would he'd, alone. He'd talk Praise about it. Jesus. Yeah, he would talk about it. So... Um, but, you know, I was talking to my, one of my neighbours who's a very smart guy, a very, um, you know, sort of a medical specialist type, and we briefly diverted onto Ukraine and he said something like, you know, I think Morrison was right when he spoke about a breakdown of the rules-based international order and uh, he was sort of a bit glowing about Morrison in relation to um about this issue so i'm still a bit worried about what s some people might be falling for it so anyway we'll see yes. mm. um that is the worry mm. um okay um so joe you're in the peter dutton electorate unfortunately yes so you would have a keen interest in any news items that might refer to peter dutton and, I might well be. Yes. And did you see – well, I know you did. <laughs> the Friendly Geordies, dear listener, put out a, a, quite a long segment for them, like a 20-minute-odd mm. um, YouTube expose of just some people associated with Peter Dutton. Now, we've got to be careful here with our language because um, we don't want to be the subject of a defamation proceeding. But anyway, raised a number of allegations about – contracts and people who were associated with Peter Dutton. And he clearly had got a lot of information from people on the inside sharing emails. There were screenshots of confidential messages and documents and clearly somebody That's has ratted out. Graphs. Yes. Yeah. Um, people with white substances on, on smooth counters lined up with powder and stuff that looked awfully suspicious. So... It was quite an in-depth expose and raised a lot of issues. And, and have you seen anything 
in the mainstream media about it at all? And the answer would be no, nothing. Um, there was but for a- someone who is quite possibly the next leader of the Liberals. Mm. Uh, there's a suspicious amount of silence, even if they're completely unfounded allegations. Mm. You'd expect to hear something. Exactly. You would, wouldn't you? Uh, was quite... He was interviewed on Radio National this morning. Not a peep out of her. Yep. And he she was. She didn't put a thing to him. And he was on Insiders on Sunday. Like this all came out on like Friday, and he was already booked for Insiders. Not a single question on it. What's going you, on? Well, you wonder. I don't is this know. The it's same as. Um, Barnaby Joyce and his affair, which apparently was an open secret in Canberra. All of the press knew about it, but they all decided it wasn't in the public interest that a family values man was banging his secretary. And you know what? I can get that to some extent. But this is to do with government contracts. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's more than just his integrity as a, you know, a father or a personal thing like the Barnaby Joyce one was. It's about government money and... Mm-hmm. Um, and it obviously warrants questions even to say, well, you've seen this allegation from Friendly Geordies that blah, 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 what have you got to say about it? N- mm-hmm. Nothing. So um, it's a really, dear listener, go and just Google, just go onto the YouTube and the Friendly Geordies um, YouTube channel. It's still up. Um, it was you know, quite recently. It might be taken down at some stage. But the interesting thing is that, you know, he hasn't, demanded that they take it down for um, with a threat of defamation. And he might have been taking due note of some other defamation cases. <laughs> That's right. Like oh, that. Ben Robert Smith is the plaintiff. Yes. Oh, my God. You have to keep reminding yourself that he is the plaintiff. He brought that action on and just... A conga line of former Credible colleagues coming witnesses. out, coming out saying terrible things, and the same with, of course, um, what is Christian Porter? Oh, with yes. his, you know, mm. so <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe yeah, Dutton's he, not so stupid. He, he he won that one right, and yeah. had pay costs, of yes. course, but yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. yeah. pay costs when you win. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Humiliating back down, I think, was the phrase. But, you know, full credit to Friendly Geordies. Like you're watching mm. it and you're going, you guys have got balls to run this. Definitely. Fearless, ballsy move. Um, mm. You have to sort of tip your hat to them and maybe even go onto their Patreon account and throw them a few dollars because that's the sort of stuff that, you know, he, he almost single-handedly got rid of Berejiklian and... And the deputy, um, Barilaro, in New mm. South Wales, like, you know, he caused an enormous ruckus down there with what was going on. Um, yeah. And just, you know, just a YouTuber um, is doing more than mainstream media to dig up this stuff. So um, some of the comments I saw on Twitter, when a satirical comedian on YouTube is one of the most fearless investigative journalists in the country who holds those in power to account, you know we have a real problem with the mainstream media. And another one which was, um, this is where we have got to in Australia when a part-time comedian can expose major government corruption. Um, Where the fuck are the investigative journalists in this country? So, 
it reminds me of the Moonlight State. Have you seen? Mm. That? Yeah, this. Yeah, it is a bit like that. Yeah, and you're going. So where's the ABC Four Corners reporter digging all this up? Yes, mm. and even if they didn't know about it, because obviously he's been given documents, so somebody mm. has perhaps used him as the first port of call. But that other outlets should be following up and asking at least the question of Dutton to say. Well, there's this allegation. What have you got to say? Um, the fact that the insiders, they must do a deal with him. He must say, I'm coming on your program, but I'm only, I'm not going to answer these questions or I'm only going to handle these questions. Well, don't have him on. Don't let him on. If, if you right. can't ask whatever questions you want to ask, then mm. tell him to piss off. He's the one who's trying That's to, right. you know. Get re-elected. Yes, and you know, try and potentially become the next Prime Minister, well, he can mm. face the hard questions. That's a, mm. The thing about the ABC, they get such a hard time from this mob, um, they don't use the power when they've actually got it. He's wanting publicity at the moment. Like he's... Yes. He is talking about the ADF with the floods and he's talking about China and talking about this all the chance he can get. He wants oxygen and don't let him have it if he's not prepared to answer any question. So... Um, there we go. Um, um, so there was one article in uh, Victoria Fielding in Independent Australia. She said, um, not only does Dutton hold the powerful position of Minister for Defence, but he is also a contender for leader in the Liberal Party, should Morrison choose to step down. This scandal, therefore, has all the ingredients you would think the mainstream media would need to make it top priority for journalists to follow up. Um, senior minister, check, high-profile candidate stood down, seemingly for no reason. Um, allegations of government contracts being used to enrich Liberal Party donors um, has all these features, and so it's quite explosive. And while the Sydney Morning Herald and the Courier-Mail reported Ryan Shaw's decision to step down from his Lilly candidacy, uh, there hasn't been any follow-ups since Friendly Geordie's video went live on Friday. So no media outlets um, have mentioned the allegations made in the video. So despite these allegations being evidenced with a series of damning leaked photos and emails, it's true there is supporting documentation that looks pretty legit. It's mm -hmm. it's not just friendly Geordies That's making right. shit up with no evidence. Um, yes. It's where we've got to. So... Um, Clive Palmer, uh, headline from The Chaser, saying, um, how do we compete with this? And the headline was, anti-vax Aussie billionaire battling COVID buys Hitler's car. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the car's fault that he was owned by Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> He didn't end up buying it. He, he's, clearly he was trying to. Who falls for this guy? Who are these numbskulls who could possibly fall for Clive Palmer's shtick? Who possibly would fall for anything he says? Um, uh, well, the amount of money he's throwing at advertising. Yeah. Did, did you see the advert? Somebody had rearranged the, um, the letters on a UAP advert. I've seen a bit of that. Oh, there was one here that uh, they changed the ad to say, um, 
you can totally trust the bloke who just bought Hitler's car to look after your interests. Was that the one? Uh, and they, well, they changed the United Australia Party to. Oh, I'm just trying to remember what it was, but it was. Here we go. Uh, free us from United LNP Failure Party. Right. Yep. Yep. So. Uh, anyway, hi, Palmer. Hmm. Um, Actually, I was having an interesting conversation on the weekend with my brother, and he just thinks throwing the throwing of lawsuits and all this stuff is really just undermined democracy. So it doesn't matter whether people take him seriously or not. No, but but the fact that he managed to get interesting. the fact that he managed to get what three or four percent or something in the last election, he felt mm. well. He claimed that that enabled him to stop a Labor government, and maybe he's right. I don't know. But the fact that he could rustle up 100 people who would vote for him, um, who would Mm. think that he in any way could possibly represent their interests, I just don't know how anyone could think that way. So Mm. you see him claiming that they'd already had three or four prime ministers? Yes, because the former name of the Liberal Party was... Something the like the Australia Party, yes. Or there was a United Australia Party that had had three or four prime ministers, yeah. And he changed the name of his party to be the United Australia Party, yes. Therefore, they were his prime ministers. Such a shameless <laughs> bullshitter, just shameless. But didn't he come out and say the Hitler car thing is misinformation? Well, he said, <laughs> he said, I never Maybe. bought Hitler's car, but the point was. <laughs> You tried to buy it. What are you prepared to say? You never tried to buy it. You never investigated mm. buying it. But he says, oh, "I never bought it." Well, mm, okay. So, yeah. Um, I, I see that they've had a big falling out with the anti-vaxxer party. Really? Have they? Yeah. Kitty. <laughs> Why is that? What over? Uh, apparently, they were only in it for themselves to push their own political agenda. Oh, that's what the anti-vaxxers... <laughs> right. No, 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 no. This is what Clive was saying about the anti Oh! Yeah. Right. Apparently there was some sort of alliance between the UAP and some anti-vax party. Right. And, and they, ha- they have had an acrimonious breaking up. Oh, dear. Right. Oh, dear. All right. Um, you sent a link, um, Joe, about Robert Reich. Reich, right? Yes, Robert Reich. Yeah. So um, he was secretary for Labour under Bill Clinton. Mm. And Time magazine named him one of the ten most effective cabinet secretaries of the twentieth century. So he wrote an article basically saying that only the right has become more extreme over the last fifty years. And he says, How do we get so divided? And he said that he started in American politics 50 years ago, and he figured he was just left of centre at that point. And 25 years later, he was in Bill Clinton's cabinet, and the left-to-right spectrum had stretched much longer. Um, The biggest change was how much further the right had moved. Ronald Reagan had opened the political floodgates to corporate and Wall Street money, bankrolling right-wing candidates and messages that decried big government. I agree with him 100% there. There's a big cultural shift occurred in the world with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher at the same time with this sort of decrying of big government. He goes on. 
Bill Clinton sought to lead from the centre, but by then the centre had moved so far right that Clinton gutted public assistance, enacted tough-on-crime policies that unjustly burdened the poor and people of colour, and he deregulated Wall Street, all of which put me further to the left of centre, even though my political views had barely changed. Today, the spectrum from left to right is the longest it's been in my 50 years in and around politics. The left hasn't moved much at all. We're still against the war machine, still pushing for civil and voting rights, still fighting the power of big corporations, but the right has moved far, far rightward. Donald Trump brought America about as close as we'll ever come, or we've ever come, to fascism. He incited an attempted coup against the United States. He and most of the Republican Party continue to deny that he lost the 2020 election. They're getting ready to suppress votes and disregard election outcomes they disagree with. So don't believe the fear-mongering that today's left is radical. What's really radical is the right's move towards fascism. So that uh, rings a bell with you, Joe? Uh, yeah, I, mean, um, I have seen articles that have argued that Barry Goldwater, who was basically the father of the House for the Republicans, would now be considered democratic. Yeah. Um, because the right, yeah, the right wing of the party has moved so far right that yeah, mm. what was what was a right wing view thirty years ago, forty years ago, when he was father of the house, mm. um, is now considered a left wing. Yep, it's and yeah, it's not that much different here. Morrison came out and said, "Oh, an Albanese government, they're the most left wing." Um, potential government we've seen since Whitlam. Like, honestly, look at the policies. They're, they're, there's not a piece of paper between them, almost, it seems. I can't – they haven't promised anything, let alone anything left-wing. Like, they're just agreeing on everything. It's hard to – you know, it's only through faith and just the – the name Labor Party, that you have a suspicion that perhaps they might be favour the left in some views if they actually get elected, but just based on their promises, there's not a lot to, to go with. And, you know, Morrison's claiming that, you know, they're socialists and the most left-wing Labor Party since Whitlam. Mm. What a joke. It's just mm. they're incredibly right-wing. They haven't targeted taxation of the rich redistribution in any way. So um, anyway. Or, or even renationalisation of formerly um, state-owned assets. Yeah. Nothing of a classic Labor sort of bent, um, left bent at all in this current Albanese model. That's right. They're incredibly yeah. right-wing. So, <laughs> um, Maybe the social housing? Hasn't he promised some housing? I, I don't know. I haven't heard of any. Particular yeah. promise, so yeah. don't know. Um, so yeah, so yeah, I agree with uh, Robert Wright that uh, the right has moved right, and I would argue the left has moved to the right. Um, and yeah, me too. yeah. So um, he's done a couple of documentaries, one of which is up on Netflix. Right, and good. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting discussion, um, uh, basically uh, talking socialism as in social democracy, 
uh, and talking to some um, entrepreneur who said, yeah, um, so I earn 10 times as much as, oh yeah, an average worker, mm. but I'm not spending 10 times as much. Mm. You know, that, that money going to the workers would go back into the economy. Coming to me, it is adding zero value to the economy. Yep. Yep. And was basically arguing for higher taxation on the rich yep. and feeding it back into the economy via putting it in the pockets of people less well off because they don't save it, they spend it. Mm. 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 Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I haven't in a long time thanked the patrons and had a couple of new ones lately. So I'm going to run through the patrons. Dear listener, if you'd like to become a patron, go on to ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and all of our old episodes are there and there's also a link to donate, so you can do that. There's also a SpeakPipe link if you want to leave an audio message, you can do that as well. And starting from the most recent, Mark Clavel, Cy Gladman, Tom Stubbings, Rico. Greg P, Shannon Legg, Liam Healy, Don Toovey, Daniel Flanagan, Matt Dwyer, Sue Cripp, James Leon, Leon, James Lean. Um, he's in the chat room, James. You're right there. Is it Lean? Leani or Lean? Um, Branwen, Wayne, David Hamby, Virgil, Craig Ball, Shane Ingram, Yam Yam Blue, Zambuck, David Copley, Graham Hannigan, yet another Pinker fan, uh, John in Dire Straits, Donnie Darker, Camille, Tom Doolan, um, Paul Waper, Alexander Allen, Matthew, Craig S, Glenn Bell, Professor Dr Dentist, Adam Priest, Murray Waper, Andy Dowling, Captain Doomsday, Peter Gillespie, Gavin S, Daniel Curtin, Liam McMahon, Happy Birthday Liam for the other day, Dominic Damassi, Matic Man, Palais, Bronwyn, of course, who's in the chat room, Kane, Tony Wall, um, sorry, didn't get down there to Sydney, Tony, uh, two weeks' time I'll be down there. Boy, I'm glad I didn't go, looking at that rain today. Steve Shinners, Alison, Ayame, Wayno, Craig Gladsby and Janelle. And people who don't like to use Patreon but who give donations through PayPal would be Mr Anderson, Matt Mann, Mr T, Paul Evans, Wayne Seaman, Obrad Puskarika, Darren Giddens, Greg Clark, Dave S from Cairns, um, Noel Hamilton's come on board recently. So has Louise. Good on you. Thank you very much. If you would like to donate, um, yeah, go to the website and you'll see the links. And it's much appreciated because there are quite a few expenses with hosting of all of this stuff, the restream that we're using for the chat uh, and the different subscriptions. Uh, roughly adds up to about $80 per episode. So, if I don't do an episode every week, I start to lose money. <laughs> That's how tight it is. <laughs> All right. Um, where are we up to? 8.37. Let's talk. You remember I asked last week, I said, if you want to argue with me about something, then get on and ring us up and argue with me. And nobody did at the time. Oh, nobody really did except um, your friend Joe Dom. called in and Dom. And he, he didn't want to argue. He just wanted to agree. And uh, anyway... On Twitter, um, so I was spending more time on Twitter. On Twitter, I haven't actually been posting anything. I've just sort of been watching stuff. So it's at ifvg underscore podcast if you'd like to follow, and eventually we'll start posting things. But got some feedback from at Skeptical Aussie, um, who is the inventor of the bullshit detector, according to their Twitter profile here, 
And um, she writes, have been listening to your podcast where you asked caller if he disagreed with anything. One thing I disagree with is I think your discussion on China is too polarised. John, question mark, was too hard on them. I think she is um, referring to Paul from the old days there. Uh. Yep. And Trevor is too naive. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. So we'll say Paul is too hard on them and Trevor is too naive. Hmm. It is also not true to say that the relationship, this is China-Australia, took a dive because of Morrison's comments about SARS-CoV-2. China became quite authoritarian towards us when Gillard cooperated with the US over their presence here. Later, Turnbull took a hard line against China over Huawei and they were quite angry. There is quite a bit of evidence of Chinese interference in Australian politics and evidence of intimidation in Australia in places such as universities. So we can trade, but let's not be naive. Eh? <laughs> so um, maybe I shouldn't ask for feedback because I got really annoyed by this one, I have to say, Skip Quasi. Really? Yeah, inventor of the bullshit detector. Like, if you just said I disagree and, and then made your argument... I can handle that. But calling me naive, ouch. So, look, of course I'm on the record on this uh, podcast talking about China a lot, but I think what you find is what I'm saying is I'm showing the other side's point of view. I'm saying you have to look at this from the Chinese point of view. Now, that doesn't mean I think that China is a bastion of freedom and goodness. It's just that... <laughs> You've got to look at it from their point of view and when assessing their actions, um, put yourself in their shoes and ask whether what they're doing is, is expected for a major power in their position from yeah. their point of view. That's what you've got to look at and compare it for consistency with other major powers, and if you give a green light to the USA to behave in a certain way, but you don't give the same green light to the Chinese to act in the same way, then you're being hypocritical. Like, that's essentially what I'm always banging on about, I would have thought, when it comes to China. So, I mean, I don't want to live under a Chinese government, but I don't want to live under a USA government either. <laughs> so... Um, it's the same when we talk about Russia and Ukraine, which I'll get to later on and we have done before. It's like Russia has a point in all of this. That doesn't mean they should invade the Ukraine, but they've got some That's legitimate right. points. Um, China's got points, but they shouldn't invade Taiwan either. So, um, and China is a superpower. It'll do what superpowers do. It'll throw its weight around whenever it perceives it should in its own self-interest. And China has some legitimate complaints about how, how Australia has treated it. And a lot of the time with what China has done, if I was in charge of China, I'd be doing the same thing. So anyway, um, so I've argued that um, when the Morrison government was talking about um, COVID cropping up in China, and the Morrison government essentially said, we should be sending people into China with weapons inspector-like powers to find out what goes on. 
and um, essentially Maris Payne um, and Scott Morrison ran that line. So I've said that's important and a sceptical Aussie inventor of the bullshit detector says... Um, it is also not true to say the relationship took a dive because of Morrison's comments about SARS-CoV-2. Well, um, Nikki Sava, political journalist, like she's written books. She wrote the biography of Morrison. She seems to me to be a smart operator. Um, mm, I, would agree. I, I would have thought she knows what she's talking about. Uh, she wrote... The tipping point is acknowledged by many experts to be the day in April when Foreign Minister Maris Payne, without warning or the cover of supportive allies, announced Australia would take the lead in pushing for an international inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. It was popular domestically. People whose lives and jobs had been disrupted were rightly furious with China. A few old China watchers vented at the time, believing there was too much politics and too little strategic thinking behind the government's push. They saw it as the latest in a series of actions, some warranted, others gratuitous, that would certainly invite retaliation. So that was Nikki Sava. I think I mentioned that in episode 282. And um, there's a timeline here. Huawei was banned in August 2018. The weapons inspector comments were made in April 2020. The tariffs were imposed less than one month later in May 2020. So if you want to, you know, all these things add up in terms of the relationship, but essentially the tariffs were imposed less than four weeks after or about four weeks after the weapons inspector comment was made. So I think you can quite rightly say... Um, as Nikki Savadis does, that it was um, a significant factor and a tipping point. Okay. Just in relation to Gillard, she says here, um, sceptical Aussie, that China became quite authoritarian towards us when Gillard cooperated with the US over their presence here. I wasn't sort of aware of anything like that, so quick Google search, and one of the first sites I found said... Um, well done, Julia Gillard. You won't hear these words very often in the run-up to this year's Australian elections, but Julia Greta Gillard deserves credit for her successful visit to China this month. The signing of a strategic partnership between China and Australia was the linchpin of Gillard's successful trip to China. This deal includes provisions for an annual leaders' dialogue. This is welcome news, signalling a bolstered political link in what is already China's Australia's largest trade relationship, worth almost $130 billion annually. The deal was hailed by politicians and policy commentators on both sides of the aisle in Australia, winning support from former Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser and opposition leader Tony Abbott. On military-to-military -military dialogue, Gillard hinted that there will also be policy-level dialogue, which will happen between our military. So this is all about building trust and confidence and transparency for the future. Blah, blah, blah. So I hardly think that that adds up to... Um, China becoming quite authoritarian towards us when Gillard cooperated with the US over their presence here. Um, the other part was Turnbull took a hard line against China over Huawei and they were quite angry, and that is true. And um, as I said, that was the correct decision. Like Australia had to say to China, um, look, we can't have you controlling 
our telecommunication system. How are we going to keep a secret from you? <laughs> but we didn't have to boast about it and to tell other countries yeah. to do the same. We could have politely said, sorry, guys, love your stuff, but we just can't do it. But what did we do? We said, we can't do it because we don't trust you. And by the way, we we're going to run around the world telling everybody else not to as well. Like that's the point about Huawei. Um, Fairly and, sure it was one of the other five eyes that told us not to. Yeah, you think America told? I think I thought the rest of the world was a little bit surprised when we did it. But um, oh. um, in any event, we did way too much boasting over that, and we should have just laid low and ducked for cover when dealing with a superpower. That's what you do when you're a small nothing country. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, talking of such things, mm. have you heard about what's going on with all the Ukrainian programmed um, devices in Russia now? Uh, Ukrainian programmed devices in Russia, no. So they're yeah. failing now, are they? Well, apparently um, electric car charging ports had a backdoor maintenance access uh, and they now say, fuck you, Putin, or something. Oh, is that right? So as you go to plug in your cars, and, of course, it's only the rich and powerful who have electric cars. Yeah. So as they go to plug in and charge their car, the little LCD screen um, comes up with fuck you, Putin, on the screen right. as they plug in their cars yeah. to charge it. But I did see where MasterCard and Visa and PayPal have effectively disconnected Russia yep. from their systems. Mm. And so, one, that affects ordinary Russians. Uh, it, it was Apple Pay and Google Pay and mm. the queues at the Metro where people can't swipe on and swipe off anymore. Exactly. Going to talk about it later. That's really important because, you know, I talked about de-dollarisation around the world, and this is just pushing Russia and China to move to a system where they're um, able to operate separate to the dollar and to American financial institutions. But we'll get back to that. Still going on with uh, this um, feedback. Um, so yes, uh, there is Chinese influence in Australian universities. Uh, don't deny that, but in a whole episode, episode 227, about the Four Corners report titled Red Flags, and essentially if you had swallowed the entire Four Corners report where they had a, a conga line of security experts come along, I sat in front of it and I was watching this and I was going, who are these people who are these commentators? You Google their names and nine times out of ten they work for some arms manufacturer or there was some um, colonist for a right-wing think tank like the Four Corners report on red flags which was about Chinese involvement in Australian universities was just shocker with right-wingers so you know the naive approach would have been to swallow that the um, what's the opposite of naive the sophisticated approach would be to actually go and look up every name that appeared in there and investigate who they were um, so, um, so yeah, um, so I think I spent a lot of time, we've talked about the history of China, its hundred year embarrassment at being occupied by foreign powers following the opium wars and its resolve to never allow that to happen again and its legitimate concern at being invaded by Western powers and the hypocrisy of the West in the double standards it applies and Australia's fawning obsequiousness to the USA. So I've pretty much, I reckon, parroted the views of former diplomats in the John Menadue blog. 
So the John Benenue blog, go and look at it under the heading of China. And there are so many former diplomats, people with real world experience. And I don't think I've said anything that would be in disagreement with what those guys have all said, because they're all pretty much unanimous about what a shitty diplomatic job we've done. Now we've caused this problem ourselves. And, but, you know, if you're going to call me naive, call Paul Keating naive. Like he went into the press club and basically said the same thing, even more forcefully. Um, sorry, Joe, you want to chip in? I was going to say the Many You blog recently has been very, very apologetic for Putin. Right. Even putting up after he'd invaded an article saying, oh, no, no, Putin's never going to invade. He's mm. he's just um, sabre-rattling. He just wants some um, uh, do you, yeah, some, some justice. Stuff. Right, yes, yes. Uh, and I'm thinking it was an incredibly naive view. Yes. They seem to be pushing a strangely pro-Putin line. Right. Um, yeah. Which struck me I, as I, very naive. Yeah. A lot on the left, actually... Uh, in relation to the build-up to the um, to the invasion, had been so suspicious of U.S. intelligence because we've seen it all before in that it's been mm. bullshit, and that they basically said there's no way this Putin's going to invade because the U.S. intelligence is telling us that it is, and they're always wrong. Where really they should have been more circumspect and have gone well. We can never trust these guys to get this right. To the left, it looked like a beat-up, and uh, in the end they were proved wrong because Putin, of course, crossed over. So uh, a number on the left did jump the gun and were too, too cavalier in declaring Putin would never do what he did um, based on the fact that they didn't want to agree with US intelligence, I think. So... Anyway, just getting back to my present argument with uh, sceptical Aussie. So, um, um, so you know, the points you've raised, I think, are wrong uh, in relation to – what did you raise there? In relation to um, um, weapons inspector stuff, in relation to Gillard, um, uh, Huawei was the way that we did it, not the fact that we did it. Um, I think I'm pretty much in agreement with the John Menadue blog list of um, diplomats and I've pretty much parroted what they've said as well as Paul Keating. So um, might be wrong, but I hardly think it's naive. So I think you need to adjust your bullshit detector or perhaps point it at yourself, I think. So anyway, that was that one. And then there was another feedback, which this one was from Paul. Paul's been on the podcast before. And um, yeah. so um, so at least Paul didn't call me naive. And um, <laughs> so... Don't he, you think her, like, I just think her point was, is that somehow along the lines of you just explaining or critically analysing the situation, she thinks you're somehow condoning it. Yeah, that is part is of the problem. Is that yeah. if just because you're giving the other, and, but then there's only three podcasters and, I know, apart mm. from you, who have been brave enough to try to explain mm. the other perspective, mm. and I think the um, clap back or slap back right. has been yeah pretty yep. pretty negative. Yeah. 
So we want everybody going the same way. We don't want to be discussing this or yeah, considering that it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, just because you're giving the other side doesn't mean you agree with it. You're just saying yeah, um, it's possible for both sides to be wrong, and um, that's right. It's it's contributing factors. There's context mm-hmm. to everything, so it's not just all good yes. guy, bad guy. I mean, that's the naive view. I would have thought. <laughs> Uh, okay. Anyway. So Paul said, um, uh, I would have come onto the podcast to challenge your view of making media partisan. To agree with you on alternative sources of information and hopefully to contribute some thoughts. So we were talking about looking at different sources of information and I was talking about what Sources I thought were good, mentioning John Mendu blog and Crikey and a few others. And I mentioned that, you know, if you can't find a middle ground and you can only find a right-wing version, then look for the left-wing version. Um, um, so I was trying to encourage people to look for the independent media organisations who and, – and people are independent because their income is not reliant on the answers they give – and that's not many, like newspapers are going and media, mainstream media has to satisfy either the advertisers or the owners or both. And therefore, these are rich and powerful people generally, so they're not going to advocate policies that are contrary to the interests of the rich and powerful. So if somebody is in a position where they can say something and they're not going to be financially disadvantaged because of it, then they're likely to be honest. And someone like Sam Harris I was referring to with his own sort of Patreon thing basically had enough happening that he could speak fearlessly. Mind you, there's also audience capture where if you find your audience is largely right-wing and they're the big payers, you can be tempted to do more and more right-wing positive commentary hoping to get a right-wing audience and make more money, uh, a la Dave Rubin. So there's all these nuanced factors to take into account. So Paul writes, I would absolutely have come on to the podcast to challenge your view of making media partisan. Well, fuck, Paul, I didn't suggest making media partisan. (laughs) I wrote to Paul because we email and he has lunch and he's one of our beer sponsors and I like Paul. I said, sure, but I wasn't saying we should make media partisan just that it often is. It's often lazily repeats the accepted narrative. If you can find neutral sources, then try and get a bit of both. If you can't find neutral sources, then try and get a bit of both sides. Mm. And he said, okay, but you seem to me to be suggesting that journalists actually ignore what the Prime Minister does or says if it doesn't form some critique of him or if it's not news. To me, that seems partisan in that it means the journalists already have a constructive narrative and if the PM doesn't fit into that, they ignore him. And, Paul, what I'm talking about there was when Prime Minister turns up at a hairdressing salon and starts washing somebody's hair, you as a journalist are supposed to make a decision that that's not news and that's not being partisan. That's just being I'm not going to be part of your public relations exercise, so I'm not going to report this. But when you start talking, then that's news. So, um, um yeah, so we had a bit of uh, toing and froing over email there. So, um, so yeah, in terms of feedback, I was accused of being naive 
and um, and then Paul sort of misinterpreted what I said. So I do want feedback, but just <laughs> keep it coming. And um, but you don't put words into my mouth. Like I wasn't saying the media should be partisan. Clearly, it is in many respects. Try and find media that isn't. And from the media's point of view, don't do a hair washing segment. It's just not news, and it's not you're not being partisan by ignoring it. So there we go. Right. Um, what have we got in the chat room here? Um, we're up to we're up to an hour and a half, and I've got um, I've got a huge bit on Ukraine which most people are probably sick of by now, but the true believers might lie to hear. And I think what I'm going to do is probably finish the podcast now, the live stream, and say our farewells, and then I think I'm going to record um, an extra hour or so on Ukraine because I've got lots of clips and things. Um, essentially looking at... Um, the whole sort of NATO um, encroachment up to Russia and the number of people, distinguished people, who a long time ago said this is going to cause a problem. And so I think I need to get all that out of the way and done and dusted. So I think I'll do that as a added – I'll tack it on to the end of this podcast. So if you're watching the live stream, make sure you – download the actual podcast and skip forward an hour and a half. And um, do you know what? James says, let's hear it. You know what? James, I might come on live in about 20 minutes and do it. Once I've um, – <laughs> I might do that. I might come on live and just go solo rant on Ukraine to add to it. I'm not sure. Keep a lookout. I might be there if, you, if you're keen. So, But it will go for a while and I'm conscious of Joe and Shay's time and that it'll just be me ranting in a one-way stream. So, um, so yeah, so let's finish off this podcast and I'll tack it on. If you, if you bail out now, make sure you listen to the uh, audio version and uh, you never know, I might come on in 20 minutes and just do it anyway. So we'll see. All righty. Okay. Thanks, Shay. International Women's Day. Done and dusted. Thank you. Yep. Thanks, Good Joe. Idea. Yep. Thanks, Joe. Good night. All right. From him. Okay. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Ah, oh, dear listener, here we go. This is something unusual. Episode 330, Part B. So if you're out there and you've hung around, <laughs> let me know. Joe will probably join in um, in a moment. So, yeah. So episode 330, did all the other stuff on International Women's Day, and I figured that not everybody wanted to hang around for the Ukrainian stuff and I put it at the end. So I'm going to run through now my thoughts on the latest on Ukraine and the things that I've found as I've been reading and give the update. So here we go. If you're in the chat room, let me know and because I'm a bit worried whether it's actually working or not. So, okay. So um, uh, at this stage, so we're recording now 8th of March 2022 and the question is, what is Russia demanding? And I saw an article from Reuters, uh, this is the 7th of March, and essentially Russia has told Ukraine it's ready to halt military operations, quote, in a moment if Kiev meets a list of conditions. The 
Kremlin spokesman said on Monday. So Dmitry Peskov said Moscow was demanding that Ukraine cease military action, change its constitution to enshrine neutrality, acknowledge Crimea as Russian territory, and recognise the, um, the, the Donbass region as independent states. So it was the most explicit Russian statement so far in terms of what it wants to impose. And Peskov told Reuters in a telephone call that Ukraine was aware of the conditions and they were told that this can be stopped in a moment. So there's no reaction from the Ukrainian side as yet. On the issue of neutrality, Peskov said they should make amendments to the constitution according to which Ukraine would reject any claims to enter any bloc. And he said, we have also spoken about how they should recognise that Crimea is Russian territory. So essentially, here's what Russia wants. If the Ukraine says that we'll never be part of NATO, and if they agree that Crimea, which has already been annexed, stays with Russia, and if they agree to give up the Donbass region, then it's all over. And I would have thought Ukraine should agree to that. I mean, for all of the death and carnage that's going to occur in that country, um, agree you're not going to join NATO, agree that you've given up on Crimea, and agree that you now give up on the Donbass, I would have thought as a deal you should strike. So, I mean, uh, there's nothing wrong with compromise. When there was the, um, the Cuban crisis... There was, a, there, was a, there was a compromise there. I mean, the Russians agreed not to put the missiles on Cuba and in return, Kennedy agreed to remove the missiles from Turkey. Now, that last piece was kept secret for a while, didn't come out to save face for Kennedy. But there was essentially Kennedy agreed to pull the missiles out of Turkey in return for... Um, the Russians agreeing to stay out of Cuba. So um, I would have thought from the Crimean point of view in terms of lives lost and the situation they're in that um, if it's simply a matter of agreeing they'll not be part of NATO, giving up on Crimea and Donbass and they can have their country back, that's what they should do. Anyone disagree in the chat room? Um, so... If you've just joined, you haven't missed much, um, John, just the, the demands from Russia, which I've just explained. Okay. What has uh, Trump been saying lately, just before I get into the meteor topics? Um, so um, he's continuing his reactionary nostalgia tour, and he gave a 84-minute address to 250 Republican Party's uh, biggest donors at the Four Seasons in New Orleans. Presumably that was the Four Seasons Hotel and not the Four Seasons Landscaping in New Orleans. Hopefully they got that right this time. Anyway, the most striking uh, was his suggestion. This is the former president and the wannabe president in the next election, Donald Trump. He said the US should put Chinese flags on its F-22 aircraft and bomb the shit out of Russia and then we say China did it. We didn't do it, China did. And then they start fighting with each other and we sit back and watch. I mean, 
this is this is um, what the former president is saying. I mean, you can't even joke about that, can you? I mean, if he's, you can't even joke about it. In the chat room, Martin Featherston says, moving missiles is a bit different to letting a belligerent neighbour slice off pieces of your country at a whim. It is, but do the calculation, Martin. Like if you were in charge of Ukraine and you could stop the fighting and the killing that's going to happen over the next weeks and months in return for that, would you do it or not? That's, that's the question. So um, anyway. Um, so, um, so looking at the history and the context leading up to this whole crisis with Ukraine is quite interesting. And, oh, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Like you're a humble podcaster, you don't know anything about Ukraine and then, you know, a month later you think you know everything about it. Um, and there's a bit of a risk that it's a bit like the COVID people who think they are COVID experts um, and ivermectin experts. And um, really, you know, when it came to COVID and technical expertise of vaccines and the competing drugs, etc., my approach to that was who are the most authoritative experts in this field and what are they saying? And the people who are coming out with what seems to be crazy non-conformist ideas, do they really have any qualifications? And the studies that they're talking about, do they, do they have any on the face of it legitimacy? And, and that's how I kind of weighed up what was the truth in terms of COVID vaccinations. And my approach with this Ukrainian issue and the lead up to it is a little bit the same, is that when talking about... Um, the encroachment by NATO and the effect that that had on Russian Western relations. Who's talking about it and what are their qualifications? Are they just a Republican politician or are they a mouthpiece for um, the military industrial complex or are they an expert who's been involved in um, Russia? Western relations for most of their life at university level or in in diplomatic circles. And, you know, you give them far more weight to that later category than you do to, you know, current Republicans. So, um, so that's what um, my approach is when looking at this is who's saying this stuff? Does it on the face of it make sense? If there's a competing argument that also makes sense, well, what's the credibility the expertise of the people making the statements. So, um, so um, Tom, the warehouse guy, in what circumstance would the US nuke Russia? Russia can invade any non-NATO country it likes. Um, uh, we'll come back to that. Um, and there's a little bit of a danger here because, for example, when we talk about what's happened with the Ukraine um, and we compare it to, say, the Cuban Missile Crisis or we compare it to um, other sort of similar situations, there's, a, there's an argument of whataboutism. Oh, you're just, you're just using whataboutism. But um, whataboutism isn't necessarily um, bad. So 
Those who use whataboutism are not necessarily engaging in an empty or cynical deflection of responsibility. Whataboutism can be a useful tool to expose contradictions, double standards and hypocrisy. So there's a line of thought that the left should not implicate the USA in the Ukraine disaster, that it's just an evil Putin and an evil Russia and blaming the USA as being a Putin apologist. But I like the John Pilger line in response to this, and he says, the invasion of a sovereign state is lawless and wrong. A failure to understand the cynical forces that provoked the invasion of Ukraine insults the victims. So I think it's definitely worthwhile to look at the forces that led up to this and um, and understand them because otherwise it can happen again. So, um, so I've got a number of clips to show and some of them are a bit lengthy, but hey, we're on a bonus uh, couple of hours here. We've got all the time in the world. If you're flooded in Sydney, you've got nothing else to do, maybe. It's at Netflix. Um, so um, I'm going to play you now a clip from Vladimir Pozner about how the United States created Vladimir Putin. This actually link came to me from one of our new patrons whose name escapes me at the moment, but thank you very much for the link. You know who you are. And the quest, first question is, well, who the hell is Vladimir Pozner? And... Um, 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 he's a French-born Russian-American journalist and presenter. So he's best known in the West for his television appearances representing and explaining the views of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. So he was memorable as a spokesman for the Soviets, in part because he grew up in the United States and speaks fluent English, Russian and French. And he himself describes his role at that time as propaganda. So he was a propaganda person for Russia. After the Cold War, Posner moved to the United States to work with Phil Donahue before returning to Moscow to continue working as a television journalist. Since 2008, he has hosted the eponymous show Posner on Russia's Channel One, where he interviews public figures. So he's clearly in the thick of Russia. He's previously worked as a Russian propagandist, but... Take all that in mind as you listen to him. There'll be other people who have a more neutral um, background to them, if you like. Um, but let's just um, find that clip because it's a good um, it's a good starter before we get into the other clips. And look, it probably goes for about six minutes or so. But there was like a ninety minute talk that he was giving. Um, so this comes from it's on YouTube. He was speaking here in 2018, so four years ago, and he was speaking at Yale's program in Russia, um, East European and Eurasian Studies. So he's speaking at Yale University, and um, um, he was, um, so yeah, from four years ago, and it was like a 90-minute episode, and I've found the best sort of six to eight minutes of it. So here we go. Let's play this, and I'll be back at the end of this bit. That's where it all began. Because the Russian reaction, and specifically this is 1998, so uh, this is Yeltsin, late Yeltsin, was, you promised not to do this. So how do we trust you if you make a promise? 
I would also like you to perhaps try to um, solve a little problem. It's a, a kind of a ma not, not ma mathematical. Take the time from when Gorbachev came to power, March 1985, to 2007, when Putin has been in power for seven years. That's 22 years. I ask you to find a single thing in foreign or domestic policies done by the Soviet Union, whilst it existed, and then Russia proper, that might in any way anger, irk, disappoint the United States. Let me answer that for you. Nothing. Not one thing during that period. Now, what did Russia get as a result of that? First, the enlargement of NATO. So that was number one. Then the bombing of Yugoslavia that was done by NATO, and NATO is, after all, dependent mostly on the United States, let's face it, right? Uh, the UN did not condone this. So the bombing of Yugoslavia, that's uh, from March 24th, 99 to June 10th, 99. Then uh, Kosovo and recognition of Kosovo, although it had been part of Serbia for centuries. And there were people in Russia who said, you're letting the gin out of the bottle. Because if you do this, then there are other countries that will do the same. And Russia did the same. There's a diapresia to begin with. Okay? Uh, Yeltsin was very angry. He made a speech. He said, and of course this is very Yeltsin-like, he said, we're not Haiti. You can't treat us like Haiti. We're a great country. We have a great past. And Russia will come back. Russia will come back. He was really, really angered. Didn't say the politically correct thing, but he spoke his mind. Uh, then finally, 2000, the year 2000, Mr. Putin is not elected, although elected, um, to the presidency. And one of the first things he does is to ask for Russia to become a member of NATO. Why? not be a member of NATO. NATO was created to defend Europe, and perhaps not only Europe, from Soviet aggression, from a country that you couldn't predict. There is no more Soviet Union, and there is no more Warsaw Pact. Why can't we create an organization where we're part of it, said Mr. Putin, and act together to protect from some kind of aggression? He was told, go take a walk, basically. What about some kind of partnership or becoming part of the European Union? Again, and this is all documented. Everything I say, except when I say my opinion, is documented. You can look it up. And he said, they, no, you know, you're too big. Your country's too big. You can't. 
and all the while, Russia was being reminded that it's no longer really that important a country. Now, one of the things you must keep in mind is that much like the Americans, the Russians believe that they have a mission, that their country was selected by destiny. Now, you know, my being French, I laugh at that. I laugh both at you and at them, because we French know that we're the best, and we, don't, we have no, 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 we have no mission, you know, the, that's it. But seriously speaking, that's a fact. And so the sense of losing this, this, this um, aura of greatness, of being told, we don't care about you. The, uh, the reaction of the average Russian to that was one of, you're, uh, you're insulting me. You're not, you don't respect me. And so the anger, gradually, and the anger focused on Gorbachev. Many, many Russians figured, you sold the country. You don't stand up to these men, to, these, to the United States. And then the same thing for Yeltsin. You'd be surprised how unpopular Gorbachev and Yeltsin are today in Russia. Maybe 5% support them, precisely for that reason. Well, there are some others as well that have to do with economic things, but nonetheless. So now here we have Putin, who, as you know, as soon as 9-11 happens, calls up Bush Jr., W, and offers his help. And yes, and does help in Afghanistan, and if you want to have your soldiers, your military people in, in Central Asia, right on our borders, be my guest. And in Georgia, absolutely. So it's not just words. You know, we, we want to fight terrorism together. And uh, gets nothing in, in, in exchange. So finally, in 2007, in Munich, um, speaking to the 20, the group of 20 in Munich, Putin says this. This is February 10th. I think it is obvious that NATO expansion does not have any relation with the modernization of the alliance itself or with ensuring security in Europe. On the contrary, it represents a serious provocation that reduces the level of mutual trust. And we have the right to ask, against whom is this expansion intended? And what happened to the assurance of our Western partners made after the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact? Where are those declarations today? No one even remembers them. But I will allow myself to remind this audience what was said I would like to quote the speech of General Secretary Mr. Werner of Brussels on May 17, 1990. He said at the time, quote, the fact that we are not ready to place a NATO army outside of German territory gives the Soviet Union a firm security guarantee. Where are these guarantees? And do you know what the answer was? The answer was, yes, but that was guarantees given to the Soviet Union and your Russia. 
Well, what kind of a reaction would you expect? Um, last year, I think it was, making a foreign policy speech, Putin said, our mistake was that we trusted you too much. And your mistake was that you tried to take advantage of that. That is the situation today. Now, it may seem to you that I'm blaming the United States. I don't want the word blame used. It was a mistaken political decision. It was not the Russians. It was this decision that finally led to this change in Putin's attitude towards the West and in particular towards the United States, which is why I say how US policy created Putin the way he is today. And the really, if you will, um, um, dangerous thing is that Russian leadership, or I should be more precise and say Vladimir Putin, does not trust the West, does not trust the United States, which makes it very difficult to move away from where we are today. Well, there you go. So that was um, four years ago. So it's really interesting. Some of the clips I'm going to show you are from people speaking a long time ago uh, relatively compared to what's going on now and how, how prescient their words are. So, you know, the theme of what he was talking about was the encroachment by NATO um, and um, essentially, you know, one of the things here is what Russia is asking for in relation to NATO is not that unreasonable. America would have to agree because if America was right about the Cuban Missile Crisis, then Russia is right about not wanting Ukraine to join NATO. So you can't, you can't say the USA was right in Cuba and um, uh, Russia is wrong about wanting NATO to stay out of Ukraine. To be inconsistent. So, this is the whole the whole point is that Russia has a point, and now you know according to international law, was Cuba able legally to put missiles on its country? Yes, you know, is Ukraine by international law legally able to put NATO weapons on its soil? Yes, but. Uh, at least the USA has to acknowledge by its own actions that it knows that there should be a, a border zone of neutrality between warring parties, otherwise it's uneasy. Imagine how they'd be if there were missiles on the Mexican border at Juarez or somewhere like that, pointing at the US. They'd be apoplectic. They would not allow it to happen. So... That's what this podcast is about a lot of time, is pointing out the double standard. This doesn't mean that it's right for Russia to go and invade Ukraine, but you have to view it from the Ukrainian point of view as well. Okay, so, um, and, you know, the interesting thing to come out of that was his argument that essentially Putin was, um, Russia essentially, he said, between 1985 and 2007, 22 years, did nothing 
that the West could complain about in terms of its actions on the on the world stage. So now, is Vladimir Posner biased? Um, you know, maybe, but in his speech he was saying, look, I'm telling you the facts and when I'm giving you my opinion, I say it's my opinion, but if I don't say it's my opinion, then it's a fact. So, you know, somebody tell me if he's wrong. Was there something done by Russia between 1985 and 2007 that would have given um, the Western powers uh, a reason to complain or did they keep a pretty squeaky clean role in the world? So it's an interesting um, idea, isn't it? That's a long time. And at the end of which Russia says, we want to join the EU, we want to join NATO, we want to be a part of Europe, and the West says, well, no, you can't, and we're just going to build up more weapons against you. Put yourself in the Russians' shoes. Okay. So um, so that was uh, Vladimir Posner and um, just sideline, you know, Think about our relationship with China and, you know, what, what have they done other than not buying our stuff? Is not buying our stuff an act of aggression? Anyway, there's an article by Caitlin Johnston. So Caitlin's one of the ones, I think, on the left who fell into a bit of a trap where she was basically saying, oh, I don't want to put words into her mouth, but poo-pooing the idea that, Putin would invade Ukraine because she was so anti the US intelligence. And I think she probably went too hard on the fact that Putin would never invade because she just didn't want to believe US intelligence. Anyway, um, I think she's made some mistakes in that department, but she gets a lot of things right. And she wrote an article that is really looking at this idea of did it really matter to Russia whether NATO was encroaching or not? And um, she says that, uh, well, first of all, she quotes uh, Chris Hedges, who I think I quoted last week or last time I spoke about Soviet Union or the Ukraine. Um, yeah, Chris Hedges was the guy who was a former New York Times um, reporter in the Middle East for decade or so, like highly respected. Uh, he had said, after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was near universal understanding among political leaders that NATO expansion would be a foolish provocation against Russia. How naive we were to think the military-industrial complex would allow such sanity to prevail. So Caitlin Johnston argues that um, what she calls the imperial narrative managers um, – meaning, you know, the mainstream Western dialogue or narrative at the moment, has been falling over themselves, working to dismiss and discredit the abundant evidence that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was due largely to Moscow's fear of NATO expansion and the refusal of Washington and Kiev to solidify policy that Ukraine would not be added to the alliance. So she lists a few of them here. So there's Michael McFowl. Um, the mass media's go-to pundit on all things Russia, and he says, Putin's horrific invasion of Ukraine has nothing to do with NATO expansion. Stop, please. Uh, well, there's New Jersey Congressman Tom Malinowski who says, the mask is totally off Putin. In case anyone has any doubts, 
This has nothing to do with NATO expansion. It has everything to do with his belief that Ukraine has no right to exist. The very idea of Ukraine is offensive to him. What? There is the security editor, or the editor of Just Security called Ryan Goodman, who writes, If you think the Russian invasion has much to do with NATO enlargement, this analysis provides many fact-based reasons to think again. Um, and she says that... Um, um, they're working hard to present a narrative that the invasion has nothing to do with NATO at all and occurred solely because Putin is an evil madman who hates freedom and wants to destroy democracy. And most Western analysis goes no deeper than this. Um, but she says the problem with this propaganda effort that NATO has nothing to do with the reasons for Putin invading uh, the problem with that argument is how come so many Western experts have spent years warning that NATO expansion will lead to an attack on the Ukraine? So I'm going to run through a bunch of characters here who have all been predicting this in one way or another. And the first one is John Mearsheimer. So I'm going to be playing a clip from 2015, seven years ago. Now, he's an American political scientist and international relations scholar who belongs to the Realist School of Thought. He is the R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago. So that's John Mearsheimer. Let's find uh, uh, that clip. Okay, here we go. But I actually think that what's going on here is that the West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. And the end result is that Ukraine is going to get wrecked. And I believe that the policy that I'm advocating, which is neutralizing Ukraine and then building it up economically and getting it out of the competition between Russia on one side and NATO on the other side, is the best thing that could happen to the Ukrainians. What we're doing is encouraging the Ukrainians to play tough with the Russians. We're encouraging the Ukrainians, to think that they will ultimately become part of the West because we will ultimately defeat Putin and we will ultimately get our way. Time is on our side. And, of course, the Ukrainians are playing along with this. And the Ukrainians are almost completely unwilling to compromise with the Russians and instead want to pursue a hardline policy. Well, as I said to you before, if they do that, the end result is that their country is going to be wrecked. And what we're doing is, in effect, encouraging that outcome. I think it would make much more sense for us to, neutral, to, to work to create a neutral Ukraine. It would be in our interest to bury this crisis as quickly as possible. It certainly would be in Russia's interest to do so. And most importantly, it would be in Ukraine's interest to put an end to the crisis. Thank you. There we go. That was 2015, seven years ago. Next one coming up is Stephen F. Cohen. Um, this one will be from 2010, going back 12 years. Who's Stephen F. Cohen? His academic work concentrated on modern Russian history since the Bolshevik Revolution and Russia's relationship with the United States. After completing his PhD in government and Russian studies at Columbia University in 1968, he became a professor of politics at Princeton University later that year and remained on its faculty until 1998 when he became professor of politics emeritus. 
He then taught at New York University until his retirement in 2011 when he became Professor Emeritus of Russian and Slavic Studies. So Stephen F. Cohen, and this is what he's got to say. So NATO represents on the part of Russia a lack of trust. You break your words to us. What can, to what extent can we trust you? Secondly, it represents military encirclement. If you, look, if you sit in the Kremlin and you look out at where NATO is and where they want to go, it's everywhere. It's everywhere on Russia's borders. But there's something even more profound that's a taboo in the United States. Uh, NATO expansion represents for the Russians American hypocrisy and a dual standard. And they see it this way, and I can't think of any way to deny their argument. The expansion of NATO is the expansion of the American sphere of influence. Plain and simple. Where NATO goes, our military force goes. Where NATO goes, uh, our arms munitions go, because they have to buy American weapons. Where NATO goes, Western soldiers go, who date their women, uh, they bring along their habits, and all the other things. It's clearly, undebatably, indisputably, an expansion of America's sphere of influence. So there has been a tremendous expansion of America's sphere of influence since the mid-1990s, right plunk on Russia's borders. All the while, every administration, American administration, saying to Russia, including the Obama administration, you cannot have a sphere of influence because that's old thinking. I mean, the Russians may be cruel, but they're not stupid. In other words, what they say is, we can now have the biggest sphere of influence the world's ever seen, and you don't get any, not even on your own border. In fact, we're taking what used to be your traditional sphere of influence, along with the energy and all the rest. It's ours now. Again, this idea of a winner-take-all policy. This is the enormous uh, resentment in Russia. The relationship will never become a stable cooperative relationship until we deal with this problem. All righty. And another one here, this isn't a clip, this is a, there's a Stephen M. Walt, columnist at Foreign Policy and the Robert and Rene Belfer Professor of International Relations at Harvard University, writing in 2015, said, the solution to this crisis for the United States and its allies... Um, the solution for this crisis is for the United States and its allies to abandon the dangerous and unnecessary goal of endless NATO expansion and do whatever it takes to convince Russia that we want Ukraine to be a neutral buffer state in perpetuity. We should then work with Russia, the EU and the IMF to develop an economic program that puts that unfortunate country back on its feet. That was back in 2015. There's another interesting character in this, uh, George Kennan, some of you might have heard of. Um, he was an American diplomat and historian, uh, lived from 1904 to 2005, so 101 years he lasted. So he was best known as an advocate of policy of containment of Soviet expansion during the Cold War. He lectured widely and he wrote scholarly histories on the relations between the USSR and the United States. So during, his, uh, during the 1940s, 
his writings inspired the Truman Doctrine and the US foreign policy of containing the Soviet Union. He wrote uh, the Long Telegram from Moscow during 1946 and a subsequent article, The Sources of Soviet Conduct, and he argued that the Soviet regime was inherently expansionist and that its influence had to be contained in areas of vital strategic importance to the United States. And those uh, writings of his provided the justification for the Truman administration's new anti-Soviet policy. So Kennan played a major role in the development of the definitive Cold War programs and institutions, notably the Marshall Plan. Soon after his concepts had become US policy, Kennan began to criticise the foreign policies that he'd helped articulate. And by 1948, Kennan became confident that positive dialogue could commence with the Soviet government. His proposals were discounted by the Truman administration and Kennan's influence was marginalised. And in 1950, he left the State Department except for a brief ambassadorial... He was briefly the ambassador in Moscow for the US. And he was a, a longer stay as ambassador for the US in Yugoslavia. And became a a critic of US foreign policy. So, um, in 1998, um, so we're going back now, 24 years, right after the US Senate approved NATO expansion, and he said at that time, I think it is the beginning of a new Cold War. I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely and it will affect their policies. I think it is a tragic mistake. There was no reason for this whatsoever. No one was threatening anybody else. This expansion would make the founding fathers of this country turn over in their graves. Of course there is going to be a bad reaction from Russia. And then the NATO expanders will say that we always told you that is how the Russians are. But this is just wrong. So um, that was... Um, George Kennan. Um, I just wanted to go back to, I forgot to say, in relation to Vladimir Pozner, he was the guy who was previously a propaganda guy for the Russians. And there was a bit in his um, speech where this Ukrainian guy asks a question. And to me, it was sort of the question that Ed might have asked. Remember Ed, um, Russian um, commentator on the last episode, and I think it's worth hearing um, that as well. So let me just um, find um, this one. So back to Posner and the uh, Yale lecture that he was giving and a question from the floor from somebody from a Ukrainian. I've been following you for many years, your work, um, going back to Telebridges uh, with Phil Donahue, and uh, uh, certainly uh, some of us remember uh, those days. I watched that back in the Soviet Union. Uh, I'm from Ukraine, uh, just for the record. Um, so uh, I uh, certainly shared your view about a lot of things that you, you speak about. Uh, today, however, I'm struggling a little bit um, to accept your point of view. Um, and I can get rid of a feeling that um, it's almost like a legal defense uh, that is trying to 
uh, explain the bad behavior of a person uh, by the external circumstances. Um, I'm certainly not naive uh, or idealistic about the policymaking in any country, including the United States. Um, and certainly, I do agree that mistakes were made. Um, not being an expert in this field, it's difficult for me to really know the exact uh, chronological sequence of the events. So it's difficult to argue what was the cause and what was the effect uh, of what you're describing. Uh, however, in your presentation today, uh, I think you uh, certainly presented uh, Mr. Putin as a positive, peace-loving person. And I'm not sure that I agree with that assessment. Um, I made a point of up to 2007. And up to 2007, Putin did nothing internationally that would speak of an aggression. Nothing at all. It all happened after 2007. It happened in 2008 with Georgia, with the war. Officially, it wasn't Putin. It was Medvedev, but you know, so um, no big difference. And then all the other things that you're talking about. But up until 2007, until that Munich speech, when he said, enough is enough, you have to respect us, you have to take into consideration our interests. The world is not unipolar, it is multipolar, and you will have to keep that in mind. Incidentally, that's why he's so popular in Russia. Not because um, he contributed to people's living much better, although they did, but he was lucky because the price of oil was high, and so that certainly helped. But because people saw him as someone who stood up to the American bully and told him off. All right. So, um, so yeah, so that's uh, Vladimir Posner. We've done John Mi um, and he was a journalist slash propagandist who admits he was a propagandist. But we've dealt with Mearsheimer, Cohen, Walt, George Kennan, all sort of very academic or also within the um, foreign policy world. Here's uh, another one, William Burns. Um, he's now CIA director. Um, or he was the CIA director, and he wrote a 2008 memo 14 years ago to the then Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elite, not just Putin. In more than two and a half years of conversations with key Russian players, <coughs> from knuckle-draggers in the dark recesses of the Kremlin to Putin's sharpest liberal critics, I have yet to find anyone who views Ukraine in NATO as anything other than a direct challenge to Russian interests. There's also this one. John Matlock served as US ambassador to the USSR from 1987 to 1991. Um, and he wrote uh, just last month, 14th of February 2022, about the Ukraine conflict, calling it, quote, an avoidable crisis that was predictable, actually predicted, willfully precipitated, but easily resolved by the application of common sense. Um, let me just see this bit here. Um, and he goes on to say, 
1997, when the question of adding more members to the uh, NATO, I was asked to testify before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. In my introductory remarks, I made the following statement. Quote, I consider the administration's recommendation to take new members into NATO at this time misguided. If it should be approved by the United States Senate, it may well go down in history as the most profound strategic blunder made since the end of the Cold War. Far from improving the security of the United States, its allies and the nations that wish to enter the alliance, it could well encourage a chain of events that could produce the most serious security threat to this nation since the Soviet Union collapsed. That was in 1997. So, Caitlin Johnson in her article continues... So many people who've worked hard to gain an understanding of the Russian government have been warning for years that NATO expansionism would lead to a disastrous conflict. Strongly emphasising Ukraine as a powder keg where that conflict could ignite. Yet we're being asked to believe that what we're seeing in Ukraine has nothing whatsoever to do with NATO expansion and is due rather to Vladimir Putin simply being evil and wanting to ruin everything. So I don't know, if experts have been warning for many years that NATO expansion would provoke an attack, and the guy launching the attack is specifically citing NATO expansion as a driving motive for his actions, it seems like maybe it's sort of kind of got something to do with NATO expansion. Which would be great news, because it would mean the US and its allies actually have a lot more power to end this war than they've been letting on and no good reason not to do so immediately. So they were all sort of links and um, mostly from uh, Caitlin Johnston. So Mearsheimer, Cohen, Walt, Cannon, Burns, Matlock, I uh, got from her, stumbled across um, a clip from Joe Biden in 1997. This is an interesting one. Um, when you look at him, here, his face, gee, looks different. And so Joe Biden, 25 years ago, talking about Ukraine. I think the one place where the greatest consternation would be caused in the short term for admission, having nothing to do with the merit and preparedness of the country to come in, would be to admit the Baltic states now in terms of NATO-Russian, U.S.-Russian relations. And if there was ever anything that was going to tip the balance were it to be tipped in terms of a vigorous and hostile reaction, I don't mean military, in Russia, it would be that. So the way I look at the calculus here... Joe Biden, a younger version, and in the same time he had this to say about um, Russia if they needed help from China. Our conversations with Ganoff was repeated with Levitt. They talked about they don't want this NATO expansion, they know it's not in their security interest and on and on and said, well, and if you do that, we may have to look to China. And I couldn't help using the colloquial expression from my state by saying to Zaganov, lots of luck in your senior year. Um, you know, uh, good luck. And if, if that doesn't work, try Iran. Um, and uh, I'm serious. I said that to them, and these were, very, and 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 they know. I knew. They knew. Everybody knows that that is not an option. And everybody knows. Every one of those leaders acknowledges and needs, and they resent it. But they need. They need to look west. 
And the question is, well, this is designed to completely shut them out, but not in terms There you go, Joe Biden saying to Russia, you won't be able to turn to China. Of all the clips I've played where people were very prescient and almost like fortune tellers with, with, with good credentials, he was the, way off the mark there. So, um, so that was a younger version of, um, of uh, Joe Biden getting it right in saying that admitting the Baltic states was a risk and getting it wrong when uh, the Russians suggested they might turn to China and he suggested, good luck with that, it'll never happen. Um, well, it's happening now. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, look, uh, it's, I just came across one other clip. This one was from Nelson Mandela. Um, it's kind of relevant. I'll throw it in now. And if there is a country that has committed unspeakable atrocities in the world, it is the United States of America. They don't care. They don't care for, the human, for human beings. 57 years ago, when Japan was retreating on all fronts, they decided to drop the atom bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Killed a lot of innocent people who are still suffering from the effects of those bombs. Those bombs were not aimed against the Japanese. They were aimed against the Soviet Union to say, look, this is the power that we have. If you dare oppose what we do, this is what is going to happen to you. Because they are so arrogant, they decided to kill innocent people in Japan who are still suffering from that. Who are they now to pretend that they are the policemen of the world? Okay. Now, uh, we mentioned earlier in the podcast just briefly that Apple Pay and Google Pay are no longer working on the Moscow metro system, leading to long queues as people fumble about for cash. So this uh, tweet that said, I like how we are meant to see this as, a, as an own against Russia instead of the terrifying realisation that a group of unelected tech oligarchs increasingly control most countries' entire infrastructure. There is something to that. If you look at that and you're saying, isn't that fantastic, Apple and Google are playing their part, it is a worry that an unelected group of oligarchs, tech oligarchs, have more power than sovereign governments and can wield pressure like this to achieve potential political aims. It is a worry. And, um, you know, people wondered why China created its own internet companies. Um, they're, they're big enough and smart enough and they've learnt enough from what's happened around the world to, to actively consider the alternatives um, when this sort of thing happens so that they're not beholden to American multinational companies. Um, sanctions. Let's briefly talk, continue with sanctions then because Apple, and, Apple Pay and Google Pay are sort of 
imposing a sanction, if you like. Um, bear this in mind, sanctions and Malcolm Fraser. Um, this was from a very old article in Crikey. Um, when the USSR invaded Afghanistan in 1980, Malcolm Fraser was savage in his condemnation and he unsuccessfully demanded Australian athletes boycott the 1980 Moscow Olympics. But when it came to blocking wool expert exports to the Soviets, including from his own property, Fraser was far less enthusiastic and he refused to follow the Carter's administration's block on wheat exports to the USSR. I didn't know that. I remember him actively campaigning to stop athletes from participating, and I think swimmers like Tracy Wickham were torn. I don't think she actually went in the end, but, you know, athletes were told, don't go and um, we're going to boycott the Soviet Union. Meanwhile, he's still happy to sell his wheat to them. I did not know that until now. Ah... Um, also, um, just thinking about Corwell and China, um, this speech was made in 1965 by Corwell. The government justifies its action on the ground of Chinese expansionist aggression, and yet the same government is willing to continue and expand trade in strategic materials with China. We are selling wheat, wool and steel to China. The wheat is used to feed the armies of China. The wool is used to clothe the armies of China. The steel is used to equip the armies of China. Yet the government which is willing to encourage this trade is the same government which now sends Australian troops, and in the words of the Prime Minister, to prevent the downward thrust of China. The government may be able to square its conscience of this matter, but it is logically and morally impossible. So, again, we have the same stuff happening with our current government where they are banging on endlessly about the threat of China yet are happy for us to sell iron ore to China. Gee, I don't know. I just have this feeling that iron ore might be a valuable thing for a government to have if it was looking to wage war against us in the future. If you were genuinely thinking that they were a threat, how, you know, why would you still be sending iron off to China? So it's the sort of whole pig iron bob type thing again, isn't it? But it doesn't get mentioned much. Um, right. You might remember I did a, um, a review of Super Imperialism, which was by Michael Hudson a few weeks ago, which was looking at currency and how... The US government is getting a free ride because the US dollar is the world's default currency and essentially they print as much as, as they like. They lend it at low interest to their companies who go overseas and buy um, assets of other countries. Those other countries, in order to protect their own currency, are forced to buy US bonds and recycle the money back to the US. So um, that's what that episode was about. And and he's been talking about at some point um, uh, China, Russia, Iran, Venezuela, these countries that are uh, sort of ostracised from the system may create their own 
currency exchange which bypasses the US dollar. And when that happens, and if it catches on, um, dark days ahead for the US who will lose a significant advantage that they've been enjoying. So um, uh, he wrote an article which said, America defeats Germany for the third time in a century. So um, let me just go on here. Uh, He's saying that there is basically... US government is controlled by three branches of oligarchies. You've got the military-industrial complex, so the people making weapons and arms and fighter jets and all that sort of stuff. Incidentally, they're very clever, those groups. They, they put factories um, in all sorts of strategically placed uh, electorates. So that's one group, military-industrial. There's the oil and gas group, and then there's the banking and real estate groups. So they're the ones who the politicians are worried about pleasing when they're making their decisions. And um, so the military-industrial group are obviously quite happy with what's happening with Ukraine. Their shares are booming. They expect to sell more stuff. Um, And the price of oil is also going to go up, so they will be happy um, in the oil um, and gas and mining sector. uh, let me just scroll through here. Um, <clears throat> just looking at um, the oil and gas. So Biden has been demanding for over a year that Germany prevent the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from supplying its industry and housing with low-priced gas from Russia and turn to much higher-priced US supplies. US officials first tried to stop construction of the pipeline from being completed. Firms aiding in its construction were sanctioned, but finally Russia itself completed the pipeline. US pressure then turned on the traditionally pliant German politicians, claiming that Germany and the rest of Europe faced a national security threat from Russia turning off the gas, presumably to extract some political or economic concessions. Um, Germany refused to authorise Nord Stream 2 from officially going into operation. Um, A major aim of today's Cold War is to monopolise the market for US shipments of liquefied natural gas. Already under Donald Trump's administration, Angela Merkel was bullied into promising to spend $1 billion building new port facilities for US tanker ships to unload natural gas for German use. The Democratic election victory in November 2020, followed by Ms Merkel's retirement, led to cancellation of this port investment. This left Germany without much alternative to importing Russian gas. So the most pressing strategic aim of NATO confrontation with Russia Russia is soaring oil and gas prices, above all to the detriment of Germany. So it creates stock market gains for US oil companies and the higher energy prices will take the steam out of the German economy. Um, Let me just scroll through.
the long-term dream of US New Cold Warriors is to break up Russia or at least restore it to its Yeltsin Harvard boys managed kleptocracy. So you got to remember when the Soviet Union broke up, Yeltsin was in charge. US companies uh, went in and made hay and bought up lots of stuff. So they wouldn't want to return to that. Um, um, I just want to get to the bit about currency. Here we go. The US confiscation of Russian monetary reserves following the recent theft of Afghanistan's reserves. So you aware of that, dear listener? Like the US just took the Afghanistan government's central bank reserves and said, we can, I think it was like $7 billion, and it said, well, we're going to take half of that and give it to the survivors of the victims of the World Trade Center bombing. Just unilaterally decided to take it and use it as they please, money belonging to the Afghanistan people. Anyway, so they've confiscated Russian money, tree reserves, um, Afghanistan reserves. Um, not sure how the confiscation of the Russian monetary reserves happened, but anyway. Um, there's also previously been Bank of England's seizure of Venezuelan gold stocks held in London. Um, this is going to accelerate the international de-dollarisation process, which has already been started by Russia and China. So in trade between Russia and China, they've been not buying and selling things in Russian in US dollars, they've been using a mixture of their own currencies and gold. So over the long term, Russia is likely to join China in forming an alternative to the US-dominated IMF and World Bank. Um, the most enormous unintended consequence of US foreign policy has been to drive... Russia and China together, along with Iran, Central Asia and other countries along the Belt and Road Initiative. So, so I see this as very interesting, actually, that, um, that those countries will look at systems of trade that don't involve the US dollar and other countries eventually might follow suit and that will be a problem for the US dollar. Um, um, Okay, um, the only, oh, and just personally, I'm just wondering uh, whether buying gold would be a good investment in that case. Don't rely on this podcast for financial advice, but uh, have a think about it. I am. Um, right, what else have I got in the clips here before I nearly finish up? Uh, I've got that. Uh, I've done that one. Um, just no-fly zones. So there's been a bit of a talk about about putting a no-fly zone over the Ukraine, and people just don't understand what that means. I mean, there's been demonstrations where people are marching and saying, close the sky. I'll just play part of a demonstration.
if you're going to have a no-fly zone over the Ukraine, that means you're going to shoot down Russian planes. Um, so if NATO or the US or a combination are going to start shooting down Russian planes, enforcing a no-fly zone, then we really are heading to World War Three, and that's not a good idea. So, you know, I don't blame the Ukrainian leader for um, asking for all these things. Um, he's got his own self-interest to try and look after, but that's not a good idea. So, all right, in the chat... Um, um, yeah, John says no-fly zones are for after you have air dominance, otherwise it's just war. That's true. So, um, you see, um, oh, you guys have been going on, which is good, but I don't think I can really go through it and keep it entertaining. So thank you for your comments, especially Tom, the warehouse guy. Maybe, Tom, we should have a private coffee at some stage and thrash all these ideas out because I feel like you disagree with me to some extent. But anyway, um, all right, well, there you go. The whole point of that was basically to give you the context and the history of the lead-up to this. It's not to say um, Putin's a good guy and, of course, he should have invaded the Ukraine. It's, it's not to say that. We've gone over this before. It's to say um, the events that uh, the Western powers well, the things that Western powers did helped create the environment that we're currently in that invariably a Putin character would come along and say, we're going to do this because of this. So it's context. It's important to understand. And, you know, if we are at some point with China in a similar position where we start lining up missiles ever closer to their border, maybe we step back and we say, hey, that didn't actually pan out so well with Russia and Ukraine. Maybe we can learn a lesson and recognise that we shouldn't do that somewhere else and repeat it. So um, <coughs> so let's bear that in mind. Okay, I've been talking for a few hours and my voice, I think, has just about given up on me. Um, Thanks for tuning in for the second part and uh, catch you next week with something. Okay, bye. Yeah. I run fifth in a rubber glove. Real shit. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for 
subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.